What is wrong with the world today? How was that for a seamless transition? Is that good? What's wrong with the world today? It's a question that many people have asked and most people have some element of a unique answer to based on their experiences. Nearly every individual will acknowledge that we do not live in a perfect world. There are very real problems that we all experience. One of the foundational elements of any worldview is connected to the fact that there are real problems with the world. And these problems impact life as we know it. Some of them are certainly bigger than others. Problems like world hunger, disease, poverty, human trafficking, racism, wars, terrorism. But our sensitivity to problems is often relative to our scenario. Inconveniences that pale in comparison to large-scale problems can often be more frustrating to us than issues of greater magnitude. This is a sentiment that has recently earned the phrase, first world problems, a name for frustrations that come because of the blessing of being in a prosperous situation. An example of a first world problem being the Wi-Fi in this room is far too slow. Or I can't decide what to wear because I have far too many clothes. I often find myself looking into a pantry full of food and miraculously can find nothing to eat. It's all just ingredients that make food and yet there's nothing to eat inside of it. Or my three-year-old son's most recent first world problem, Lucky Charms doesn't have enough marshmallows. <laughs> I think that we generally recognize that these problems are small in the great scheme of things because there is a universal recognition that there are serious problems in the world. According to one study uh, that was conducted with 35,000 millennials, ages 22 to 36, from over 186 different countries, these are the top 10 problems in the world. Lack of job opportunity, safety and security, lack of education, food and water availability, corrupt governments, number five, religious conflicts, four, poverty, three, inequality or discrimination, two, wars, and one, climate change or destruction of nature. Let's be clear, some of these are real issues, but one of the most foundational elements of one's worldview is not actually their view of these social or cultural issues, but rather their view of the ultimate problem that lies behind these. There are real problems in the world, but there is an ultimate problem that causes every other problem. The question at the heart of our passage this morning is what is wrong with the world? And the answer is that the ultimate problem with the world is sin. This passage shows where it came from. This passage shows us why the world is the way that it is. The book of Genesis is a book of origins. It's really an introduction to the larger work of the Torah or the Pentateuch as a whole. The Pentateuch is the first five books of your Bible written by Moses and delivered to the Israelites. At the heart of the Pentateuch is the law, the law that God delivered to Moses. But if you were to pick up one of the books of the Pentateuch, say for example, Leviticus, and start reading through this book that is filled with laws that God has given, you would have all sorts of questions. Who is it that is giving these commands? Why are these different than the laws of other nations? Who should I obey? Why should I obey? Why do there need to be commands in general? What is the danger of living a life apart from this law that God has given? 
The book of Genesis answers these questions and more by giving the origin or the background to God's relationship to the world as a whole and specifically with the Israelites. Of foundational importance to understanding where the world as we know it came from and how it works is Genesis chapter 3 where the ultimate problem of sin is introduced. Where does sin come from? How big of an issue is it? How does it impact me? These are questions that Genesis 3 answers. And these are questions that we must be able to answer if we are going to rightly understand the world and rightly live in it. Now, in case you are unfamiliar with the book of Genesis, let me bring you up to speed where we stand in Genesis 3 before we read our text for this morning. Genesis 1 recounts how the earth was created by God and that it was created in a perfect state. Genesis chapter 2 recounts that God created a garden and he placed the first man and woman in that garden and all things were perfect. The first humans were called to take care of the garden and to enjoy the garden, but that they were not to eat of one very particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was at the center of the garden. They could enjoy everything else, but not that. That's when we come to Genesis 3. We're going to read this whole passage, so follow along as I read Genesis 3, verses 1 through, 13, through 19. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? He, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your, chain and your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it will grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. In Genesis 3, verses 1 through 19, we are taught four foundational lessons for the world's greatest problem. Four foundational lessons for the world's greatest problem. In the first scene of this chapter, there are two characters, the serpent and Eve. Eve is familiar to us in the book of Genesis. She's introduced in chapter two, but the serpent is a new character. He's briefly described in verse one. Verse one says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The serpent is an animal that is described as crafty. It's actually a term that's used elsewhere for, for wise. In other words, the smartest, most prudent creature that God made was the snake. The language of this verse indicates that this description is meant to describe the snake as an animal. It was an intelligent creature. But as soon as the snake starts speaking, it becomes clear that this is no ordinary snake. Revelation chapter 12 actually tells us that this snake is Satan that is indwelling this animal. So what's taking place in this scene is that Satan is going to speak to Eve through the body of what was known as the most intelligent animal that God created. And as he does, we see the first foundational lesson for the world's greatest problem. Sin comes from the deception of temptation. Sin comes from the deception of temptation. In the second half of verse one, we read, then he, the snake, said to the woman. Now, this snake was an intelligent creature. But this detail in the text is just a little bit surprising. The snake begins to talk. And there's no explanation given for, this, for the fact that the snake immediately begins to speak to Eve. It's an important reminder that this passage is not intended to satisfy our curiosities about all of these facts. In fact, a talking snake is not in the least bit the most surprising thing in this chapter. It's not the most surprising thing in this verse. When the snake opens his mouth, he begins a strategic attack. There's three stages to this strategic attack. The snake is going to first question God's word. Then he's going to contradict God's word. And then he's going to qualify God's word. Now, a word before we jump in is that it is profitable for us to take note of Satan's actions here. Because he's still doing the same things today. So if we recognize where Eve failed to be faithful, we can grow in our response to temptation as we see how Satan chose to tempt Eve to sin. So this first move in verse one is to question God's word. He says to Eve, then he, the snake, said to the woman, indeed, has God said? We're gonna pause there for a second. Has God said? The first words out of the snake's mouth are going to test Eve's knowledge of what God has commanded, of what God said. The terminology here is meant to introduce some level of skepticism in Eve's heart. 
We could translate it as the snake saying, has God really said, has God truly said that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, the answer to that question, as we read in chapter two, is no. That's not what God commanded at all. To see exactly what God commanded, we have to go back to chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the, knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. The question that Satan asks hardly resembles what God actually commanded. Now, Satan surely knows what God commanded. He couldn't have flipped God's words so intentionally if he didn't know what God commanded them. So why does Satan ask the question in this way? The answer to that is because in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, Eve wasn't there. Eve had not been created yet. In fact, in chapter two, the next verse that follows the command that God gives to Adam, look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The snake is raising the question, does Eve actually know what God commanded? And she does. Eve fires back with a very direct answer. In chapter three, verse two, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. She roughly quotes from Genesis 2, 16 and 17. It's not an exact quote, but I think, I think it's understandable. Eve wasn't there in the book of Genesis and not yet been written. She says, we can eat of any tree in the garden. This garden is for us to enjoy. We can eat of any tree except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve knows God's expectation. She says, we are not to eat from it. We're not even to touch it. Look at that detail in verse three. She says, don't even touch it. It's a fascinating detail. Because back in Genesis 2, God never said, don't touch the tree. It seems that this is something that Adam and Eve instituted to keep themselves far away from the fruit. To stay away from the tree, they committed in their hearts not to even touch it. It would have been foolish for Adam and Eve to play with the fruit, to, to feel it, to talk about it, to look at it, to smell it, but just not to eat it. So Eve knows what she's supposed to do. Stay far away from that tree. Remove yourself from that tree. Of equal importance, she knows what will happen if she disobeys. At the end of verse three, you will surely die. Satan has questioned God's word and Eve responds well. How important it is that Eve knew what it was that God said. It's insightful for us that Satan's first what we could call his, his first technique of deception is to test whether she knows God's word. If Eve hadn't known God's word, she wouldn't have even made it past this first test. She is able to articulate the exact command of God, which is the appropriate and the good response. Eve has done well. She's done well up to this point. But knowing God's word ultimately is not enough. This is very important. Knowing God's word as Eve does is not enough. Eve knows what God says, 
but Satan isn't done attacking. We pointed out that Satan seeks to deceive Eve in three stages here, the three techniques of deception. He questions God's word first, and Eve responds correctly, so then the serpent contradicts God's word. The the serpent contradicts God's word. Look at verse four. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. This is a direct and a blatant contradiction of Genesis 2, 17. God says, you will surely die. Satan says, you surely will not die. Now Eve knows what God said. She just rehearsed it. So here is Satan's most exposing step. He directly contradicts God. In the first stage, Eve proved that she knew what God says, but now she will be tested as to whether or not she actually believes what God said. Will she believe God? Or will she believe the enemy who is directly contradicting the very words of God? Anything or anyone that contradicts the words of God is a liar. If it doesn't align with God's word, this is a rule. It's false. This is why we need to know God's word. Because Satan is a liar. Jesus in the gospel of John actually calls Satan a liar and the father of lies. He twists the words of God. He's been doing it ever since Genesis 3. Every time that we are tempted to sin, a contradiction of God's word is being placed before us. If we're going to identify those contradictions, identify those lies, we first and foremost have to know the truth. This is what temptation is. It is a lie that is placed before us and we are called to choose who it is that we are going to believe. You see, these same foundational lies manifest themselves every time that the father of lies tempts. Do you know what God's word has said? Do you believe what God's word has said? If you are going to resist temptation, you need to recognize and be ready to respond that every time the desires of your heart long for something that contradicts God's word, it's a lie. It's a lie and we should run. This is the dagger. Eve knows that this contradicts the very words of God and she should have run when she heard his words contradicted, but she doesn't. She stays. She lets the serpent explain to her why God's statement was wrong. It's a tragic mistake. She lets Satan engage in, the, in, a, in a third stage of deception here, and that is that he qualifies God's statements. He questions God's statements. He contradicts God's statements, and then he qualifies God's statements. Satan starts to give the reason that you will not surely die, the reason that God is wrong. Look at verse five. He says, for God knows. Stop right there. It's a bold strategy. He pins God as the one who is hiding something from Eve. Keep reading in verse five. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan says, the reason that God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit, Eve, is because if you do, 
you will be like him. Your eyes will be open to the reality of good and evil as God's are. That's why God doesn't want you to eat of the tree. Because if you do, you will be like God. Now, was Satan lying when he said these words? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. The statement that he gives that if you eat of the fruit, you will be like God is actually generally true. If Eve eats from the tree, she will gain a fuller knowledge of what good and evil are. In fact, in verse 22, after our text this morning, after Adam and Eve eat of the tree, God actually affirms these words of Satan. He says, they have become like us, knowing good and evil. So Satan's words are not necessarily explicitly a lie here, but the statement that Eve will be like God is very misleading. It's very, very misleading. A common strategy for large companies and products is to get celebrity endorsements. The thought is that if there is a product that we want to sell and there is a person who has a whole bunch of fans that see the person that they love and adore wearing or uh, encouraging this product, that the fans of that person will become the fans of a product. So we see this happen all the time in commercials, on TV, and in advertisements. There are basketball players that release lines of, of shoes, and they show themselves wearing their shoes. I remember a, a commercial with a basketball player named, named Derek Rose who was wearing a shoe that Adidas was putting out, and it was, it was a shoe, a basketball shoe that was promoted as an incredibly light shoe. And they showed pictures of Derek Rose soaring above the rim and, and throwing the ball down. Indication being, what you're lacking is the shoes. Now, I think you all know that the difference between me and a professional basketball player is not just the shoes. <laughs> Even if I had the shoes, there's a, there's a gap, a significant gap. The same thing is happening here with Eve. Satan is saying, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. Well, yes, there's a sense that that's true, just like there's a sense where if I wear the same basketball shoes as a basketball player, there's an element of which I am like that player, but it's highly misleading. It's extremely misleading. Eve walks into this thinking, aha, God is hiding something from me. He doesn't want me to be like him. The fruit is good. Satan's strategy is effective. Eve believes the lie. She believes that God is ultimately hiding something from Eve for his own good and her detriment. Though it may have been surprising that God was questioned, though she may have been shocked that God was contradicted, she listened to the serpent's qualifications of God's command and she believed him instead of God. And at the heart of the issue, in the moment of temptation, that is what happens. When someone chooses to listen to temptation, they are choosing to believe the lie rather than believe God. It leads then to a second foundational lesson for the world's greatest problem. Second foundational lesson for the world's greatest problem is that sin culminates in disobedience to God's word. Sin culminates in disobedience to God's word. Verse six communicates this truth. 
Verse six reveals the moment that Eve commits this sin. And in this verse, we immediately see the motive behind her decision. The motive behind her decision to commit this sin is is threefold. Look at verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, then she took from its fruit and ate. There's three motivations that show up as to why she reached out and takes the fruit. The first that's listed in verse six is that she looked and saw that the tree was good for food. The fruit that was on the tree appeared to taste good. But there was another motivation. Not only did it appear to taste good, but it was delightful to the eyes. It's different than saying that it looked like it would taste good. It's actually to say that there was something attractive about this fruit. It was delightful to look at. So it looked good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. And the third motivation behind her taking of this fruit is that it was desirable to make her wise. Now that third motivation is what Satan convinced Eve of. All along each of these motivations, Eve is doubting God's words. God said this fruit will lead to your death if you eat it. But Eve is looking at it and saying, the fruit looks good. It looks good. It's important to note that the motivation for Eve to disobey God is not just the external pressure upon her from the serpent. There are three motivations here. And the first two of them are actually just the the desires of Eve. It looks like it will taste good. It looks desirable to the eyes. The serpent did not have to convince Eve of these realities. Those desires were already within her. It's only the third motivation that the serpent actually convinces Eve of. The serpent didn't make Eve take the fruit. He didn't make Eve do it. The lies that the serpent convinced her of aligned with her actual desires. Sometimes it's easy for us to think that we give in to sinful desires because of the situation that we're placed in. It's easy to think that we give in because of the pressures that are all around us, the seeming unavoidability of the situation or the inevitability of eventually giving in. We don't give in to sin because of outside pressure. We give into sin because temptation aligns with our desires. Eve makes a choice. It's a choice to follow her desires rather than God's. To disbelieve the lie, to believe the lie rather than God's word. And to disobey what God has commanded rather than to obey. So at the end of verse six, She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. What's the big deal with a piece of fruit that Adam and Eve choose to eat? Seems insignificant, doesn't it? Why this as the sin that brings the world down? The fruit matters in this scene because God said in Genesis 2, 16 and 17 that the fruit matters. It was sin 
because God said it was sin. Neither Eve nor us is in position to question the why behind what God commanded. It falls to us simply to obey the one that we trust. The fruit looked good. The fruit tasted good. The fruit in one sense made her more wise, but none of that matters. None of that matters. There are things in our life that seem attractive, that seem desirable, that seem like they would cause little to no harm. And sometimes we can try to reason our way into sin based on the desirability and relative, based on our perspective, insignificance of the offense. But Eve's decision was a decision to disobey God's word. And this is what is at the heart of all sin. The climactic moment of sin The culmination of sin is a decision to disobey what God has spoken. Why does Moses describe all of these details that accompany the temptation and Eve's motivation behind taking the fruit? Why does he, he doesn't have to put all these details in here. Why does he give us all of these details about the the nuances of the fruit? Remember that the book of Genesis would have been handed to the Israelites on the plains of Moab. God had just given them a series of laws and they were called to obey them. They were called to live their lives in light of them. And some of the laws may have seemed a bit strange. They may have seemed a bit unnecessary. They may have seemed a bit over the top. But what makes something sin is if it is disobedience to God's words. The same is true for us. Just because we don't understand why something is wrong doesn't make it right. Just because something looks desirable to us doesn't make it right. Just because something seems that it would be pleasurable doesn't make it right. And just because something seems like it would lead to our benefit doesn't make it right. If God has commanded it, we're called to obey. And if anything contrary to that is presented, it's disobedience. So often we make the mistake of Eve. We commit sin in foolish unbelief. We choose the lie. And in this scene, Eve doesn't sin alone. The last words in verse six are that she gave it to her husband with her and he ate. She gives the fruit to Adam and he eats too. Where on earth was Adam in this scene? And why does he follow Eve in this sin? Whether Adam was by her side the whole time or Eve called him to her side to eat the fruit, no matter what takes place, this is a tragic, tragic failure on the part of both of them as they choose to disobey God, to disbelieve God, and to eat the fruit. This sin is not insignificant. There are repercussions that are immediately felt. And this is the third foundational lesson about what is wrong with the world. The third foundational lesson is that sin causes shame and denial. Sin causes shame and denial. These two effects of sin are communicated consecutively in this text. We start off in verse seven, where we see that sin leads to shame. There's immediate shame that is felt by Adam and Eve. Sin causes shame in Adam and Eve. Look at verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. At the very instant that sin culminates in this scene, 
when they disobey God's word, Adam and Eve become fundamentally changed. They become aware of all of the intricacies of what sin is and they become sinful. Because sin is now a part of who they are, they immediately become aware of their vulnerability, that they are unclothed and they hurry to cover themselves up. Previously, up until this point in history, there was no sin on the earth. And so there was no shame. There was no need for them to be covered because there were no sinful thoughts. There were no sinful judgments about another person, no sinful actions. But now, along with all of those things, they recognize that they are vulnerable and uncovered and shame overcomes them. They don't want to be seen in their entirety. So they make a loincloth and they cover themselves. That shame manifests itself even further in verse eight. Look at verse eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve hear God walking in the garden and they hide from him. They've never done this before. They've always had a relationship of perfect communion with God, but now they feel the need to hide. In verse nine, God asks a, a question. The Lord called to the man and he said to him, where are you? Now God's going to ask a series of questions here and it's not because God doesn't know the answers to these questions. He wants Adam to explain himself. So in verse 10, Adam explains himself. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam heard God walking in the garden and he was afraid. Fear was a new emotion. Why was Adam afraid? He says that he was afraid because he was naked. But wait, the last thing that Adam and Eve did was they covered themselves up. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to cover the shame. The clothing didn't cover the shame. Adam felt exposed and unhidden. He is hiding because of a shame that comes from disobedience. And so God says to Adam, he asks him two penetrating questions in verse 11. He says, who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Who told you you were naked? You've always been naked, but you've never recognized it before. You've never been ashamed. You've never been afraid. You've never known any better. Did you eat of the tree which I commanded you not to? Again, God knows the answers to these questions. He, he knows that the only reason Adam would feel fear and shame is because he ate of the tree, because Adam had gained a knowledge of evil that he did not have before. But in Adam's response to these questions, we find that sin not only causes shame, but that it also causes denial. Look at Adam's response in verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Remember that the question that God asked Adam was, did you eat? Adam does not initially answer the question directly. The first thing to leave his mouth is the woman. 
She convinced me to eat. But Adam goes further than that. He doesn't just say it was the woman who convinced me to eat. He says it's the woman that you, God, gave me. The woman whom you gave to to be with me, she gave me the fruits. And then I ate. Adam puts the blame on Eve. He puts the blame on God. And only then does he admit to eating the fruit. Adam's immediate reaction is not to admit his flaw, but to point to the other two individuals who placed him in the situation. God gave the woman. The woman gave the fruit. Yes, I ate, but it ultimately wasn't my fault. Adam is immediately in denial about his ultimate responsibility for his disobedience, and he isn't the only one that feels that way. Look at verse 13. Then God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. Eve is equally quick to point to someone else. She admits that she ate, but only because of the serpent. He deceived me. In other words, I'm not the problem. I am the victim in this scenario. Oh, how easy it is for us to adopt this same mentality that we are victims of sin, not the ones responsible for sin. And it's so convincing in this text because because it's partially true. Eve did give the fruit to Adam. But Adam is still responsible to obey. The serpent did tempt Eve, but Eve is still responsible to obey. We give in to temptation because of our desires, ours. We are the problem. When I sin, I am the problem. It's not my environment. It's not the other people around me. It's not that I'm lacking sleep or had a hard day. Those are all circumstances that may encourage our our sin, but, but they don't cause it. I cause it. What sin first produced in Adam and Eve, it produces in us shame and denial. It's ironic because those two things really contradict one another. Shame admits guilt. Denial rejects guilt. We are ashamed when we know we did something wrong. We deny when we want to protect our reputation. And yet sin produces in us both of these. An awareness of wrongdoing and a simultaneous denial of it. We have a hesitancy to admit our personal culpability for our sin. We have a tendency to blame our surroundings, the people around us, the scenario that we're placed in, the difficulty of the situation. We need to recognize that ultimately we sin because we choose to disobey God's word. Eve sinned because she wanted to. Adam sinned because he wanted to. We sin because we want to. We aren't quick to admit this. But at the very heart of confession at the very heart of confession is admitting guilt and shame not denial not redirecting not blaming others admitting guilt admitting shame and choosing to disbelieve the lie and embrace God and his word confession of sin is so important so important for many reasons, not only because confession is indicative of a true child of God, but ultimately because the results of sin lead to something much greater than just shame and denial. And that is our fourth foundational lesson, that sin concludes in pain and in death. Sin concludes in pain and in death, and this is why confession is so important. In this scene, God is going to speak progressively from the serpent to Eve to Adam. He pronounces the repercussions of their disobedience. And we don't have time to explain this morning all the details of this curse that he is going to pronounce upon humanity, but it is summarized by the words, pain 
and death. The serpent is the first one that receives this curse. God looks at the serpent in verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and on dust you will eat and dust you will eat all the days of your life. The snake itself as an animal is cursed above all other animals in creation. It is cursed because it was the animal that Satan used that will be forever be associated with bringing sin upon the world. It is cursed to crawl on its belly as a sign and as a reminder to the world of the origin of sin. In verse 15, the curse towards the serpent continues in one of the most fascinating verses in the Old Testament. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The recipient of this element of the curse seems to extend beyond the snake as an animal and into the one who is controlling the snake, that is Satan. Though Satan here is still being referred to as a serpent, he is the recipient of this curse. The curse to Satan is that there is a coming seed of the woman, offspring of the woman, who will crush the head of the seed of the snake but not before the seed of the snake bruises the heel of the woman's offspring. Now, let me first say that this verse is worthy of an entire sermon in its own right. There is so much to dig into here. So many questions that we don't have time to answer. This verse has been known throughout church history as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. God appears to be telling Satan that the day is coming when a wounded descendant of the woman will deliver the crushing blow to Satan and his people. The ultimate curse towards the serpent indwelt by Satan is you will be defeated. At this moment of seeming victory for the serpent, when he has tempted Adam and Eve to bring sin upon humanity, God looks at the serpent and says, you will not win. You will not win. He curses him. And then he speaks to Eve. He looks to Eve and he says in verse 16 to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your, your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Again, so much that could be expounded on here. Ultimately, there's kind of two curses that are given to the woman here. Incredible pain in childbirth. And, and I think secondly, a tension in the marriage relationship between a man and his wife. She will desire to rule over him, but he will rule over her. And finally, he looks to the man. He looks to Adam. And in verse 17, we read, Then he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you will return. Two elements of that curse upon Adam, weariness and incredible difficulty in working the ground and, and bringing home food. But ultimately the ultimate curse that he will return to dust from which he was taken. This is the ultimate curse of death. When God, what God said would happen, happened. If you eat of the fruit, you will die. They eat and God says, you will return to the dust 
from which you are. The curse that comes from sin still rules over humanity to this day. The ultimate result of sin is still pain and death. It is a curse that no one can overcome. Every man who comes from Adam has the nature of Adam and is a sinner, sinful to the very core. And because we are sinful, both by nature and by act, our ultimate destiny is pain and death. This is what is wrong with the world. This is the ultimate problem. And any solution to any problems that we experience on earth is nothing more than a Band-Aid that eases the pain until we all one day die. We return to the dust. But thankfully, the Bible does not end in Genesis chapter 3. If we fast forward a few chapters, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham. And he says, though the world is under a curse, through you, the whole earth will be blessed. We come to the New Testament and we read of Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, who was the God-man. God took on flesh in the person of Jesus and lived a perfect life as God, unlike any other man. He was not sinful. He never sinned. And, in doing, and, and he, however, received the penalty for sin. He was taken by sinful men and nailed to a cross. He was killed. He received pain and death. The penalty for sin, even though he never sinned. And in doing so, he paid the penalty for sin that no one else could pay. The only one who didn't deserve death died so that you might have life in him. And he made a way for you to have life with him by raising from the grave, rising from the grave, defeating death itself. We are called then to confess to repent of our sin and to place our faith in Christ who overcame the curse of death that resides upon humanity. If you haven't done that, at the end of our service, there'll be someone at the prayer room, Ben Hyman, one of our elders, will be at the prayer room that would love to talk to you about how you can be saved from your sins. Many of us, though, in this room have already done that. So what does this sermon have to do with us? We're gonna close by turning over in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth and he looks to this church and he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse three, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Our minds are under attack just like Eve's, but we are called to respond differently, to remain faithful, to maintain simple and pure devotion to Christ, to recognize the lies of temptation, to resist them in the power of the spirit that dwells within us, to admit shame and guilt when we do sin and to confess it to God. And he is gracious, he is forgiving. So be a constant confessor before God. He is faithful to forgive. There is no glory in concealing sin, but there is wonderful grace to be discovered when we confess our sin.